All right, if you'll take your Bibles and open up with me back to the book of Ezekiel, we will be in chapter 43. I'm not nearly as bold as Brian, so I did not take on three chapters at one time. We are just going to be here in chapter 43 tonight. Let's begin by reading the first 12 verses. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory, and the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Chabar Canal. And I fell on my face. And as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring, by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places, by their setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever." As for, the, for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits, and its entrances, that's, that is, its whole design, and make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws, and write it down in their sight, so that they may observe all, the, all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on the top of the mountain all around shall be most, most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. The passage that we have uh, before us tonight here in chapter 43, it continues the description of the temple that was given to Ezekiel, which we began last week back in chapter 40. Now, in this chapter, as you can tell just in the first few verses, we see a lot less of the plans, of the design of the temple, although we will have some of that in this passage as well. Uh, We have more of the result of the building of the temple in this passage. The name of my sermon tonight is Faithful to the Faithless. Now, that's a title that might not make a, a lot of sense to you or complete sense to you right now, but I hope by the end of the passage, by the end of the sermon tonight, that that will make sense. Faithful to the Faithless. I do think that this is an important chapter for us to see that it is hard to place this temple being built after the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. There will be several places as we continue to work through this this chapter which point us back to that old covenant law contained within this this temple and the, the plans for this temple and that old covenant economy. Something that was fulfilled and made obsolete, right, with the death and resurrection of Jesus. So again, I think as we work through this, and I'll continue to, uh, to point to those things, it's just harder and harder for me to see this as something that will be built or is meant to be built post-resurrection of Christ. Now, one focus that Ezekiel has had throughout this book, really, beginning all the way back in chapter 1, has been his focus on the glory and the holiness of God. 
the book began with a display of the glory of God. And along the way, Israel defiled and, and attempted to pollute that through their idolatry, eventually that resulted in, in the glory of God leaving the temple, a point which we will uh, come back to soon. We'll talk more about soon in this passage. But in this passage, the glory of, of Yahweh is again our focus. It is the focus of Ezekiel here. In this passage, it signifies that God would accept this temple, which was described in, in uh, most of its detail last week. He would accept this temple in the worship within this temple if it were built in the manner in which it was meant to be built. So with that said, here in verse 1, we see that Ezekiel is led to the gate, the gate facing the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of His coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with His glory. So again, the temple had been described for these last three chapters in, in great detail. And this same one who had taken Ezekiel around describing the temple to this point in those first three chapters, he is the same one who's with Ezekiel here in verse 1. He continues to lead Ezekiel around this temple and continue to show him things about this temple which was meant to be built to, if given to a repentant Israel. Ezekiel is now led back here to the east gate of the temple. Now, this mention of the east gate and this leading him back to this east gate, it is done on purpose and it is significant. It really sets the tone for the rest of the chapter. You might recall back in chapter 10, Ezekiel was shown in that chapter, Brian preached that chapter, but it was shown in, in that chapter, Ezekiel was shown a vision of the Lord who had turned away from Israel because of their sins, the, the, we, the Captivity, the final captivity, captivity of Israel, Judah, and uh, their their judgment was on the brink of happening. I mean, it was basically you know over overnight that was expected to happen. And, and Ezekiel has shown the Lord turning away from Israel and leaving the temple there in Jerusalem through the east gate. That that's where the Lord's glory left. That was symbolized there uh, in in that that. Uh, vision to Ezekiel, which Ezekiel witnessed. And I said Brian preached that passage, and I thought he brought out some, some really good things for us to consider in that chapter. But what he, one thing he brought out, or a couple things he brought out relating to this chapter, was in, in, one thing he said was in Matthew 21, we see where Jesus, when, when He is coming into Jerusalem towards the end of His life, right before His crucifixion, Jesus enters into Jerusalem and enters into the temple through the east gate, he comes back through the tri triumphal entry, right? We, that's, that's the chapter that's commonly referred to as the triumphal entry. And that's an event where Jesus is, is returning and He's coming in uh, to the, the, the gate there. He's coming into Jerusalem. Many hailed Him as God, right? I mean, many, most of the, the main populace were, were doing that. And they were right in doing that. Jesus, He is God. And He is the glory of God. Jesus consistently showed Himself to be God throughout His entire ministry, His entire life. Yet, the people ultimately failed to see He truly was God, right? Now, we do believe, and Todd mentioned this when he introduced the temple, we do believe that the temple given here in Ezekiel, it was not meant to be, uh, or it was not built. It ultimately was not built. And the return of the glory of God, which we will see in this passage, to that temple has not happened. Okay? So Jesus was not fulfilling Ezekiel 43 in Matthew 21 when he came into Jerusalem 
even though he was hailed as God, and he came in through the, the east gate there in, in that triumphal entry. In fact, the temple in which Jesus continued on into, in which he cleansed, was not the temple that was, that was given here. It was, it was not the plans. That, that What was built, they were not part of the plans given here. They were plans more according to and modeled after Solomon's temple. But Jesus coming in through that eastern gate and, and going into cleanse the temple there in Matthew 21, I believe it was just another example for the people of Israel at that point of Jesus declaring Himself to be Yahweh. And it should have triggered something with the people at that point. It should have been another time, yet another example, where the people of Israel, they made that connection. They didn't know, because three days later, they ultimately crucified Christ. Right? They cried for Him to be crucified. So we just see another failure with that generation, another example of that generation rejecting an obvious uh, example of, of Christ presenting Himself as Messiah, as Yahweh. Another thing that uh, I thought Brian brought out that uh, it, it points towards our passage uh, to a great extent was later as Jesus leaves the temple in Matthew, in Matthew 23, He, he stops as He's going out. And, and it's kind of reminiscent of Ezekiel 10. In Ezekiel 10, when the glory of the Lord is leaving the temple, it stops for, He stops for a moment. Um, and uh, he speaks, but as Jesus is leaving the temple there in Matthew 23 and verse 37, he says this, he says, Old Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is declaring there that, he is, they, will not, they will not see Him again, in this sense, to coming and declaring, being declared as Messiah, as God, until they say, blessed is He who came, comes in the name of the Lord. They, they recognize Him as Messiah, as God. And, and this is further proof, I think, that Ezekiel 43 was not fulfilled in that triumphal entry, right? Because as we will see in this passage, when the glory of God returns, and He is said to have returned in this, this temple, it will be forever. He was, he was meant to return forever. But it is another instance where we see the glory of God in Jesus departing the temple because of the rejection of, of Israel with a subsequent promise, though, that He would return to a fully repentant generation of Israel. That's what He's, he's promising there in, at the end of, of or in, when He speaks there in Matthew 23. He's ultimately saying, I will return. You just won't see me again until you declare me as Messiah, until you see me as Messiah, until you are a repentant generation. So it is, it, it, that it, this is a, a promise similar to what is given here in Ezekiel 43. I'll get more on this as we continue on in this passage, and I'll, uh, I'll hopefully hammer that out a little bit more uh, as to how that applies to, to chapter 43, but I thought those were two connections, both with this chapter and with, with the life of, of Jesus, that were good for us to see. But what we see here in verse 2 is the re return of God to this temple. This temple that was to be built by a repentant Israel. His return, as we see here in verse 2, it was going to be loud and it was going to be bright. It was going to be unmistakable. There was going to be no question. The glory of the Lord had returned to this temple. It would be impossible to miss. The sound that's described here, the sound of many waters, as the glory returns, is very similar to what is described by Ezekiel back in chapter 1, verse 24. There, Ezekiel is before the glory of Yahweh 
And he, he says, over the heads of the living creatures, there was like the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads, and under the expanse where their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters. But Ezekiel goes on to say, like the sound of the Almighty. A sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. So this sound, it was made by angels in chapter 1, but Ezekiel immediately associates it with, with God Himself. The sound of the Almighty. And it's meant really just to give us a picture of this, this great sound of the glory of God. The Almighty coming to fill this temple. Now, notice also here that in the coming of the glory of God, not only would the temple see His glory, and, and you could assume that the people of Israel obviously would see His glory, but what does the text go on to say? It says that the earth would shine with His glory, right? If it means what it says then, this return mentioned here in chapter 43, it would be marked by the whole world. Something that we know has not happened, right? Right? Now, when the glory of God returns for the whole world to see, though, one, one day, that will be in the person of the conquering Jesus as He comes against the army assembled against Israel there in the Valley of Megiddo. How does that square with what is here in this chapter? Again, I will, I'll, I'll try to bring this all together as we get towards the end of this chapter and, and hopefully bring some, some clarity for us. But we move on to verse 3. Ezekiel's Memory here is brought back to the visions he had in chapter 1 and 10. He understands the significance of it here, and it brings him to his face. As he sees the glory of, of Yahweh returning, and he knows the significance of it, he brings, you know, again, it brings him back to his visions in verses chapters 1 and 10. And, and he, he, he's fitting all of this, his overall message, together, I think, at this point. As Charles Feinberg states, here is one of the many instances in the prophets where the complete identification of the prophet with his message is, is evident. The true prophets of God, they didn't get lesser visions or lesser prophecy where they were unsure if the message was from God or, or if there was just you know, what was going to happen, so to speak. They knew when God spoke to them. It was evident. They connected it with God's previous messages and with God Himself. They spoke without doubt then as they spoke to others. They spoke with the authority of Christ and they spoke with accuracy in their messages. Completely unlike anything we see today. These claimed false messages that are, are, you know, that are given in these, these half prophecies or these partial prophecies. God does not deliver partial, questionable prophecies where we have to wonder if it's supposed to come true or if it's really from God or not. Every prophet you see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they were clear that the messages they got were from God. They connected it to the messages they got elsewhere from Him, other times from Him. They, they all connected together and they, they knew they were getting a word from God. That's what we see here with Ezekiel. He sees the glory. He falls down to his face. And then verses 4 and 5, Ezekiel is brought back to his feet by, by the Spirit. And he's brought back to see the rest of this vision. And he's brought into the inner court of the temple. I know the picture's still up there. We won't have a whole lot we're going to direct to the picture. But if you want you know, to, to kind of get an idea of where Ezekiel's at, it will be up in that inner, temple, this, or inner court of the temple. And there Ezekiel sees the glory of Yahweh entering the temple again and filling it. What he sees here is this great cloud with brightness around it and a fire flashing forth continually, gleaming like metal in a fire. And what, is, what, what this is, is the Shekinah glory. 
This is the earthly manifestation of God to the people of Israel in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. This is commonly how He, he manifested Himself, His glory to them in the Old Testament. Now, this is not the manifestation of God that we have under the New Covenant, though, right? This is not what we, we saw with the coming of, of, of Jesus. God Himself came as Jesus. And He will come back in the person of Jesus. And we will dwell forever with God in the person of Jesus, fully arrayed in His glory, right? In verses 6-9, through nine, this vision continues, and God promises Ezekiel that by the building of this temple, and, and with the return of His glory to this temple and Israel, He says Israel would never defile His holy name again. Now, the latter part of that promise, it will happen one day. There will be a day where Israel will never defile His holy name again. But again, the building of this temple will not be what brings that about. That's not what's going to trigger them not defiling His name again, which is, is what it seems to be indicated partly in this chapter anyways, is that once they are faithful uh, to Him, they, they rebuild this temple, then His glory will come and they will never defile him, His name again. Now what will, will bring that about will be their trust and acceptance of Jesus as their Messiah through the New Covenant. That will, bring apart, that will bring their faithfulness, bring about their faithfulness as a nation. It's not going to be their adherence to the Old Covenant law. We see someone else then begin to speak to Ezekiel here other than the one who had been showing him these measurements and, and the layout of the temple. This other voice, as we can probably clearly see here, is certainly the voice of God Himself, the voice of Yahweh. As He tells Ezekiel that this is the place of His throne. Now, God is the only one who would or will have a throne once He returns. There's no question that this is God speaking to Ezekiel here. And what the Lord tells Ezekiel is, is quite interesting. He tells Ezekiel that this is the place where the soles of His feet would be and where He would dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. That is certainly kingdom or eternal, ang- lang- eternal ages language. We, we, we've seen that in other passages here in, to some extent, in other passages here in, in Ezekiel and in other, other prophets. But remember, the glory of, of God had left the temple during the life of Ezekiel, right? That had happened, I mentioned that back in chapter 10. And so to the, that generation in Ezekiel, it, it appeared as if God had completely forsaken them. That's what they thought, that's what they felt. But God here, He begins to, he, he gives them plans for restoration and a return to Ezekiel, to that generation, okay? Not only would God promise to return and restore that generation, but He promises that from that generation forward, if that happens, Israel would never again defile His holy name. As I mentioned that a little earlier. No one would. As we read in this passage, from the lowest to the kings, everyone would be faithful within the nation. They would not commit spiritual adultery any longer. They would be His people and He would be their people. And I know I keep on pushing this off towards the end, but I want you to tuck that away in your mind. And I'm going to come back to that when we get towards the end. But that is the promise that Ezekiel is told by God to give to this generation with a condition that we'll see here in a moment. Okay? 
Ezekiel speaks here uh, in these couple of verses also about the dead bodies of their kings. We see that written here. There, and there are two ways in which this statement about the dead bodies of their kings can be understood. One way to understand this statement is that these prior kings, they had led them into idolatry. They had polluted the temple and the worship of Yahweh because of their spiritual leadership. And, and, and it could be seen as, as God saying this would no longer be the case uh, when this temple was built with repentant Israel, when God returns with His glory to dwell with them forever. A second way uh, in that Scripture um, indicates that the bodies of 14 kings of Judah were interred in royal sepulchers in Jerusalem on the southeast hill uh, where the temple and the palace were located. We, we know that from passages in Scripture. So some commentators, they, they think that Ezekiel is being told here that those bodies, when this temple is built, those bodies are going to be removed uh, because they, they would defile, dead bodies would defile the temple. You know, dead bodies were, uh, were said to make anything unclean on the Old Covenant law, and that would make sense under the Old Covenant. It fits also with verse 12, where you know, we, we see in verse 12 it talks about how the whole area, the whole territory on the top of the mountain would be most holy. I'll let you pick which one you, you feel like fits better. And in verses 8 and 9, the, the abominations and, and the idolatrous acts were told of the people and their leaders. They would be a thing of the past in this new temple and, and with the return of the Lord. He, he was to remind them, Ezekiel was to remind them, this generation as he took this back to them, how his anger had consumed them, right? I mean, he had consumed them due to their, their rebellion and, and, and that, would, that, that led them into captivity. And that He would not return and restore Israel and fulfill His covenant promises to them while they still lived in idolatry. That, that could not take place. An idolatrous, unfaithful Israel could not receive the covenant promises of God. That truth has not changed today. That, that is still true today. A, a, a Christ-rejecting, idolatrous Israel will not see the covenant promises fulfilled to them. Then in verses 10 and 11... I think we really see the key to this chapter. We start to really connect this chapter uh, and make some key points about this chapter along with the, the rest of this whole prophecy about the temple that Ezekiel was given. In verses 10 and 11, let me just reread those. We see, As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. Then in verse 11 we read this, And if... They are ashamed of all that they have done. Make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its, its exits, and its entrances, that, that is, its whole design. And make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws and write it down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. So, Ezekiel is told here that he was to take back to the people this prophecy... And, and describe to them basically the greatness of these plans and the wonder of the return of Yahweh through these plans. But, verse 11 tells us he was not to give them the actual plans, not yet. He was to determine whether they were ashamed first, whether they were repentant, basically, of their sins and their rebellion. If and only if he found that to be the case, was Ezekiel then to give them the full design and the full plans of the temple. Of course, the flip side to that is that if Ezekiel went, gave, these, gave this vision to Israel without the full description of the plans, this, this 
generation that he was living in, if he went and gave that to them and, and he found them not to be ashamed, not to be repentant, they wouldn't get the plans, right? I mean, there's no other, it's either, it's either or. Either you're ashamed and repentant and you get the plans, or you're not and you don't get the plans. So I, I think this is an important thing for us to think about and, and to consider as we continue to, to work through this passage. So think about a few things um, with that in mind. All right, Israel is in captivity here in Babylon, right? They're in captivity when Ezekiel receives these plans. We know that Israel was to be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years in total. We, we know that based off of what the prophet Jeremiah was told in Jeremiah chapter 25, 11. Their total time of captivity there in Babylon will be 70 years. This vision right here was given to Ezekiel uh, only 25 years into the captivity uh, into their captivity according to chapter 40. So we're about 25 years into those 70 years of captivity. So even if this generation had truly been repentant, had gotten these plans, then I, they still would have wait, had to wait for the completion of those 70 years of captivity before God would have allowed them to return to Babylon and, or return from Babylon and start building this temple, these plans. But if they had been repentant, I believe that upon the completion of those 70 years, they would have gotten these plans in full detail and they would have begun as a faithful generation to rebuild the temple that Israel, I mean, Ezekiel was given and described here in this, these uh, chapters, in this vision. We do know that a group of Jews returned from Babylon to Jerusalem after the 70 years of captivity. And we know that they rebuilt a temple. But that group that returned from Babylon to Jerusalem after the seven years of captivity was a very small number compared to the total number of Jews that were in Babylon. The vast majority, and you'll have to ask Brian, the scholar, what that number is. He, I think he knows it off the top of my head, but I mean, off the top of his head, not my head, because I'll tell you if it was on my head. But the vast majority of the Jews that were in Babylon remained there. They stayed there. Only a small group left and, and came back to, to Jerusalem. And that group that did come back, they were far from faithful. They were not diligent in their efforts to rebuild a temple. They were not diligent in their efforts to work for the Lord. In fact, many prophets, or a number of prophets, were sent by God to them to remind them and to warn them and tell them, be about God's work. Don't build your own homes. Don't worry about your own places. Be about God's work. Rebuild the house of God. It took them far longer to rebuild or to build the temple than it should have. So they weren't faithful and they weren't, it wasn't the entire generation, the entire nation. Those things we know for certain. Further, the temple that they actually did finally rebuild, it was modeled after Solomon's temple. Not the temple that Ezekiel gets here. And it was far from glorious. It was not a glorious temple. In fact, according to Haggai 2.3, there were, there were a few who were still alive, who were old enough to have lived the final, in, in that, through that final captivity from Jerusalem, or excuse me, from, from Jerusalem and, and uh, there in Judah into Babylon, and they come back out and come back to Jerusalem. There were a few that had lived through that whole process. And they had, so they had a memory of Solomon's temple that, that had been built prior to the captivity and prior to uh, its destruction. And this was their reaction when the foundation of this new temple that they built when they returned 
uh, when they saw it compared in their mind to their memory of Solomon's temple. According to Ezra chapter 3, we read, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though, not, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So what that passage, what that verse, those verses are saying, that the, the people, the older ones that had lived long enough to have gone into captivity and come back out of captivity, they remembered the glory and the greatness of Solomon's temple. When they saw the foundation of this new temple to be built, they wept, but not for joy. There were those that were they're weeping there, there in, in that, that group uh, that had come back that, that were, were shouting for joy, but those that knew the difference, they had seen the glory of, of Solomon's temple and they saw this new temple, they wept because it, it did not compare. It was not, it was not a glorious temple compared to that temple. Not only was that temple inferior then to, to, the, to Solomon's temple, and also, then, I think, clearly inferior to the temple that we see described here in Ezekiel. We also know that the Shekinah glory is never mentioned in connection with the temple that was built by that group that went back to Jerusalem, that, that was led by Zerubbabel and those who returned from exile in Babylon. So it seems obvious that the, the new temple there that was rebuilt, it was far from greatness, it was far from grandeur from that previous temple, but this temple that God has been describing and that He told Ezekiel to give to the people of Israel to rebuild if they were repentant, if they were ashamed, it was going to be great. It was going to be grand. Uh, uh, it's going to have grandeur. It was going to be a place that God would dwell eternally. He would be. He would return. His glory would come to it, and He would dwell eternally. So it seems clear that the group who returned to Jerusalem after that seven years of captivity and they rebuilt a temple, they didn't follow these plans. This is not the temple that they rebuilt. And I think you know, Todd mentioned that in his introduction to this, this whole temple section. But he also mentioned this, and I agree. God's prophets, when they went to that group, there in, in that small remnant that went back to uh, Israel, they, they never mentioned these plans for them to get, to get to work on. They didn't say, you need to be about building Ezekiel's temple. You need to be about building these plans that Ezekiel gave you. You're not doing that. Not one time was that mentioned. They built a different temple then with different plans similar to the one that Solomon built. Okay, the theme of the night. More on this in the conclusion. My conclusion is not really going to be that long. I know it's going to seem like it. Uh, I'm going to try to wrap some, just some thoughts together when we get there though. All right, moving on to verse 12. In verse 12, Ezekiel is told that the whole area here that this temple was to be built on, it would be holy or separated because that is where God's glory would be. And this just continues to build on, on the separation here between God and the people under the Old Test, I mean the Old Covenant economy. Remember back in chapter 42, I don't know if you remember or not, but just last chapter when Brian was explaining the temple dimensions, God told Ezekiel this, he said, the north chambers and the south chambers, which are opposite the separate area there, are the holy chambers, where the priests who are near to Yahweh shall eat the most holy things. They shall lay the most holy things, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, for the place is holy. When the priests enter, they shall put on other garments. Then they shall come near to that which is for the people. So in this temple, which is to be built, 
or what was to be built uh, by this generation in Ezekiel, there, there's a separation that we see between the common people and, and Yahweh. Even to the point that these priests who were to come close to Yahweh had to take these garments and, and put on uh, other garments when they were to come near that, that to which is for the people. Th- these barriers, though, the, the sep- this separation between the common people, between anybody but the priests and the glory of Yahweh, th- those barriers, they were destroyed by Christ, right? They were, they were brought down through the new covenant and the sacrifice of Christ. I just think that we continue to see the differences between this temple and the old covenant and, uh, and, and what we, we have in Christ and what the new covenant brings to us. Then in verses 13 through 17 we read, These are the measurements of the, the altar by cubits, the cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. Its base shall be one cubit high and one cubit broad, with a rim of one span around its edge, and this shall be the, the height of the, the altar. From the base on the ground to the lower edge, two cubits with a breadth of one cubit, and from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits with the breadth of one cubit. And the altar hearth, four cubits, and from the altar hearth projecting upward four horns. The altar sh- hearth shall be square, twelve cubits long by twelve broad. The ledge shall also be square, fourteen cubits long by fourteen broad, with a rim around around it half a cubit broad, and its base one cubit all around. The steps uh, of the altar shall face east. So here in these verses, Ezekiel he receives more plans for the, this temple than uh, what he had given, been given in chapters 40 through 42. But this is a key part of the temple and temple worship. It, it, it's plans for the altar itself. This is the place where the sacrifices would be given. Now, I don't want to keep beating a dead horse here, but it seems clear that this temple was meant to be built under the old covenant economy, right? That, that had to be the case because Jesus had not come and died yet for sins, right? I mean, the, the, this, that had not happened when Ezekiel got these plans. And if this temple was going to be built prior to that, then it would still be under the old covenant co- economy. But I, I believe it's clear as we continue to see the plans for this temple given, uh, including the altar itself, that, that the, this was meant to be built under an old, old covenant economy. The altar described here was, uh, it would rise a little over 19 feet from its base. And it would have steps, obviously, that took the priest up to the top to make these offerings. And I think this is the ultimate process of the design of the temple. If you recall, what Brian was going through the temple continually just kind of elevated. As, as we got in closer and closer, uh, the temple continued to, to ascend upwards. And then I think the, the design and the purpose of that was just to point to the holiness and the otherness of God, right? As we ultimately get to, to the altar itself. According to verses 18 through 26, then we read, And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, These are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it is erected for offering burnt offerings upon it and for throwing blood against it. You shall give to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a bull from the herd for a sin offering. And you shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar and the four corners of the ledge and upon the rim all around. Thus you shall purify the altar and make atonement for it. You shall also take the bull of the sin offering and it shall be burned in the appointed place belonging to the temple outside the sacred area. And on the second day you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering. And the altar shall be purified as it was purified with the bull. When you have finished purifying it, you shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. 
You shall present them before the Lord, and the priest shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. For seven days you shall provide daily a male goat for, the sin, for a sin offering, also a bull from the herd, and a ram from the flock without blemish shall be provided. Seven days shall they make atonement for the altar and cleanse it, and so consecrate it. And we'll go ahead and read just to the end of the chapter, verse 27. And when they have completed these days, then the eighth day onward, the priests, from the eighth day onward, the priests shall offer on the altar your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord God. So according to verses 18 through 26, immediately after the temple temple was to be erected and the altar was put in place and the glory of the Lord returned to it, then these priests from the family of Zadok were to begin offering sacrifices unto the Lord. Not just any sacrifices, but I'm sure as we read through that, you, you saw they were to offer sin sacrifices, right? And again, I want to stress, I stand firm with Todd in saying that the sin sacrifices were obsolete after the death of Jesus. I cannot see a way that they will be a part of worship to Jesus when He returns to set up His kingdom. I just can't see that. I think Hebrews is clear on that. We know the purpose of Christ's death. We know the purpose of these Old Testament uh, sacrifices, specifically the sin sacrifices. And I cannot see those meshing with worship for Christ in his, when He returns to set up His kingdom. But what, what we see described here really is a dedication, at least in these first seven days, a dedication, verses 18 through 26, a dedication of this temple to God. And, and what is done here really is similar to what was done in Exodus once the tabernacle was finished and later what was done uh, once Solomon finished building the temple. A similar, uh, or similar, similar ceremonies were, were done that's a hard word for me, similar for some reason, I don't know why. But they, they were the ceremonies that were close to this, they were, they were done um, at those same times too. And so we, it, it follows suit that this new temple under the Old Testament or the Old Covenant economy would, be, uh, would have the same type of ceremonies to, uh, presented to God, given from the people to God in, in order to consecrate, to purify, and, and to uh, have acceptance of this this temple by God. In the verse 27, we, we read about an eighth day. Once these seven days were done, these sacrifices were finished, God tells Ezekiel that once that's done and these ceremonies are complete, then on that eighth day and for every day after that, these sacrifices will, can, will need to continue to be made. And, and by these daily, seemingly eternal, perpetual offerings, they would make Israel acceptable to Yahweh. Through these, these sacrifices. Again, I think just an impossible thing to reconcile with a new covenant, with the new covenant, and with a millennial kingdom worship command. These sacrifices were meant to take place, as we see here repeatedly, originally for seven days for an atonement, to cleanse, to consecrate the altar. We thought we see here salt was to be used to further the pers- pur- purification and, and preservation process. But then from that eighth day forward, once this cleansing was done, the priest would be able to offer sacrifices which Israel would bring to them, the significance of which, again, would be for them to continue to be accepted by Yahweh. The significance here in this seven days, these seven days leading up to this, this verse 27, I think probably lies within the Sabbath laws of the Old Covenant. Every seventh year, for instance, one uh, every seventh year was considered a, a sabbatical year. And, and during the sabbatical year, the Israelites, they were not allowed to till the land or harvest crops. 
it was a year for rest for that land. The Sabbath is rest, and it was supposed to be rest for the land there. But following that year, into the eighth year, they would consider that as a year of new beginnings. I mean, they're, 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 started, they're able to plan again, till again. It would be new beginnings, so to speak, after the rest was given. So that idea is probably at the heart of this ceremony, these seven days and then that eighth day coming. Uh, with this new temple and with the return of the glory of Yahweh to that temple in Israel to dwell forever with them, this repentant Israel was meant to have a, a new beginning, so to speak. That eighth day would, would represent that. But again, we cannot get away from the fact that this would be under the Old Covenant system. That, that's com- All the language we have here in these passages are under the Old Covenant system. That system of sin sacrifices and separation of God's glory from the, the, the general people. Once Jesus came, though, He came with the new covenant. He is both our Sabbath rest who satisfied the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year of rest, and He is also our new beginning, right? These sacrifices used to consecrate and accept this temple, they're they're not necessary as Jesus, He made the ultimate and final sin sacrifice, which made our worship acceptable and made it possible to dwell in the presence of God forever without limitation or without separation. So, with all of those things in mind, let me have two points of conclusion. Maybe I'll try to bring some of this together. I hope I do. If not, you can talk to me afterwards and, and I'll see if I can do a little bit better job one-on-one. This passage reminds me a lot of Acts chapter 3, verse 19. In that chapter, in Acts, Peter is speaking to the nation of Israel after the crucifixion of Christ. The same generation, the same people who crucified Christ, crucified their Messiah... Peter there tells the nation of Israel soon after that crucifixion, the same people who did the crucifixion, he tells them this, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus. Peter tells that same generation that crucified Christ, Repent, Jesus is going to come back if you repent. And times of refreshing will come when He returns. Basically, He promises that generation that if they will repent, God will send Jesus, the kingdom will come, and all of the Old Covenant promises, the Old Covenant promises of restoration, not the Old Covenant, I'm sorry, the Old Testament promises of restoration, the the, the covenant promises to Israel would be fulfilled, right? Now we know they did not repent as a nation. Jesus did not return at that time. He's not yet returned. Obviously, God intended for the gospel to go out into the entire world. He intended for the church age to to be about the world for a, a period. There was still a promise also coming of a time when the Antichrist would come and the whole world would turn against Israel and against Jesus. Now, if Israel had repented at that time, then and there, when Peter offered that to them, then those things, they wouldn't have come to pass, right? I mean, the gospel would not have gone out into the whole world under, uh, through the church. They would have not have, have uh, gone out through the foundation of the apostles, which Christ had told them they would be and that that would happen. But that doesn't take away from the truthfulness and the realness of the promise that Peter made to them through, by God that if they repented at that point, 
that would have happened. The times of refreshing would have come and Jesus would have returned. The same is true with our passage in this, in this temple. If that generation that Ezekiel lived in had repented, had been ashamed of their sins, they would have received these plans. They would have built this temple. God in His glory would have returned to the temple for the whole world to see. And He would have dwelled with Israel forever, and Israel would have never defiled His holy name again. That would have happened. They didn't, though, right? They did not repent, so this temple was never built. God in His glory didn't return to dwell forever with Israel, so on and so forth. Of course, we know, this side of the cross, that Christ had to come. That had not happened yet. Christ still had to come. He had to die for the remission of sins so that man could live in peace with God and fully enjoy Him eternally. That had to happen. But, by the same token, by the same thought process that we have from Acts 3, that does not take away from the truthfulness of this promise to the generation in Ezekiel. I can't fully comprehend that. And I don't expect you to either. But just because we can't comprehend it fully does not mean it's less true. I'll say it, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I love what John MacArthur says about God. If we fully understood God, He would not be a big God. It's the same thing about salvation. If we fully understood the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God, well, we, we, just, we, we would be God ourselves, right? That's something that's fully impossible to grasp. Some things we just have to take as in faith that we know God has said it, it is true, and He's working all things out, right? So, just because we take the stance, and I believe the more I study this, the more we go through this, and, and I hope you guys are seeing this too, that this temple is not going to be built. That, the, that what is promised in here, it will not happen in, in the full context of this passage because it was only offered to that generation of Ezekiel. They did not repent. They did not fulfill uh, the, the promise, uh, or they, they did not fulfill the, their part, so to speak, to repent. So they did not get these plans. Does not mean that it was not a true promise. Does not mean that God would not be faithful to His Word and that it would not have, would not have happened. So the second point, what do we take away from this? Why, why, do, why do we care? I think that the main point and the main thing for us to take away, especially from this passage, this chapter, is the faithfulness of God. Faithfulness to the faithless. My, my, my title. Let me explain. Even though the passage and the plans here were meant specifically for Ezekiel's generation, I believe this passage was meant to be given for an encouragement to all future generations of any faithful uh, Israelite or even us today. I want to be clear once again that this was a sure promise to that generation of Israel, a sure promise of restoration for Israel. A sure promise that Yahweh and His glory would return to them again and would dwell with them forever. That did not happen because that generation was not faithful. But it absolutely would have happened had they been faithful. And I want, to th I want you to think about that. This promise was given to the generation of Israel that had been so unfaithful, so rebellious, so idolatrous, that they had extinguished the patience of God 
and had brought destruction on Jerusalem and captivity for that nation. That's the generation that God is promising in this chapter, in these, these chapters, for His return, His dwelling, and His promises to, to come back to them, right? If God went, then was willing to restore and dwell with that generation, and He was willing to, that, to do that because of His faithfulness, to His promises and to His people and His name, well, we can be sure He's not going to balk at that in the future, right? He's not going to be faithful to fulfill His promises in the future. He's not going to be full faithful. He's not going to be unfaithful to fulfill His promises both to Israel and to us who have been grafted into the New Covenant and the New Covenant promises. And, and you know, again, looking back at that generation with Peter's day, right after Christ was crucified, a promise of restoration was given to the generation that crucified Christ. I, there are just parallels here between that generation and this generation. God is faithful, even to the most unfaithful, if you want to put it that way. And, and humanly speaking, it's hard to look at two more unfaithful generations in Israel than the generation here in Ezekiel's day and the generation there in Peter's day, right after the crucifixion of Christ. Crucifixion of Christ. Yet God promised them, you repent, I will be faithful. And we know that that day will come. They will repent. He will bring about these promises. He will bring about their restoration. And again, we can take heart in that, not only because we know God is faithful to His promises, but because we are grafted into new covenant promises as well, and we can be thankful and look forward to the return of Christ and His fulfillment of His promises to the nation of Israel. Stand with me.